Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with us another Tuesday evening where we continue our reflection on the Church Fathers, the great ancient Christian thinkers. We are in that period where we are in the uh, post-Golden Age of Doctrine. So what does that mean on a timeline? Well, uh, over the past month and a half, two months, we have been talking about the likes of uh, St. Jerome, uh, St. Augustine, uh, St. Leo the Great. I mean, these are some giants, and we have the opportunity to continue reflecting upon these giants with Today's figure, St. Benedict, uh, the founder of the Benedictines. Uh, Not that he intended to find an order, but we'll talk more about that later. Um, And it is Tuesday, so uh, I welcome John O'Hare this evening. Thank you, Joe. Good to be here again. So, John, I also wanted to uh, welcome uh, and continue to welcome our uh, international listening audience by way of podcast. Again, I continue to see an expanding audience in in, uh, Italy and uh, the UK, as well as South America. Um, Buongiorno. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. So, okay, St. Benedict, off the top, I wanted to, John, make a few points as it relates to uh, the man, and I know you have a lot to say about some uh, biographical pieces. We often think of St. Benedict as the father of Western monasticism, as he is, and and I have made uh, some points on this radio program uh, about monasticism, um, specific to figures we've already talked about. St. Anthony of Egypt, who we considered the first monk, right? The word monk, you know, in the Latin, manos, alone. And then we had uh, St. Basil. Uh, when we were talking about St. Basil, John, we were talking about how here is a man who really established a rule for monasticism. So if that's the case, then what's going on with St. Benedict's rule that we often connect to monasticism. Well, the distinction is to be had uh, when you start talking about the East and the West. Okay, so St. Basil was one of the great Eastern fathers. Now, what we are made to understand here, John, is that Benedict offered little that was original. Instead, he culls the best from several Eastern rules, okay, that come to us from the likes of, again, St. Basil and synthesize them in a most effective way. Certainly such things as his to pray is to work, and the way uh, in which he stressed the need for that more formal communal prayer, um, specifying times the monks should gather to chant the psalms and pray the liturgy and that kind of thing. Certainly that's St. Benedict's uh, touch. But again, what I want us to see is that uh, really there's a continuity in history. Uh, as it relates to East and West, and especially in those uh, first 600 years. So with that, John, what more can we say about one St. Benedict? We can say plenty about St. Benedict, (laughs) and uh, let's just begin with a couple of biographical early facts, okay? His lifespan was 480 to 550, and so that would make him about 70 years old when he died. He might have died uh, 547, it uh, doesn't make any difference. Mm -hmm. And his birth date is speculated. He was born in Nerissa to middle class, let's say maybe even upper middle class family, well-educated, 
and he left his family in his middle teens, could be 15, could be 16, and he went to Rome with a nurse. The nurse was there to be a housekeeper and to take care of him. And he goes to Rome to get an education and to uh, do, I guess, kind of like St. Augustine did. Anyway, he goes to Rome, and remember, the the uh, empire is in decline, mm-hmm. and uh, there is sin and licentiousness going on, and his school buddies were into that. And I don't know how long he was in Rome, but he left. And he took his nurse with him, and he went to a town called Enfide. And he stayed there, I don't know how long, maybe less than a year. And that was not holy enough. He felt God had called him to be holy and alone. So he left. I sounds like he left the nurse as well. Mm-hmm. And he goes to the town of Subiaco. And there he meets a man named Romanus, who is a monk. Uh, we'll call him a monk. Mm-hmm. He's kind of a, a lone monk. Mm-hmm. And he pours out his heart to Romanus, and Romanus helps him. He finds him a cave up on a cliff, and you have to climb up to get there. And uh, Benedict goes into the cave, and Romanus sees him daily with a, about a pound of bread, and by a rope, the bread goes up to Benedict, and Benedict spends three years mm-hmm. in this cave alone praying. And this helped him quite a bit. And one of the things I don't quite understand is other people knew about this and would come to see him and talk. I don't know if they ever went up to the cave. Uh, But anyway, he became something of a little bit of a notoriety. Now, in this cave, he came across three important spiritual truths that uh, helped develop him. One was he was working against temptations. One is the temptation of self-affirmation and the desire to put oneself at the center. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're talking about humility. Yes. The, the rule has a lot to say about humility. Mm-hmm. That, the second thing would be the temptation of sensuality. Uh, Augustine and, you know, these are problems we have, and mm-hmm. he worked on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the third one would be the temptation to anger and revenge. And uh, so those were three items that he worked on in this cave. And eventually, he was persuaded to come down from the cave, and he began to find various houses, and he set up rules for these houses. I think there was ten monks to a, we'll call it a, we'll call it a monastery, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, there were ten monks to a monastery, and I think he founded twelve of these. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know how far apart they were. They weren't all one big complex. And they followed a rule, and this went on for almost 25 years. And he left because there was dissension. He also has had rumor to have worked miracles. Now, there was a story that uh, some of these monks uh, tried to poison him by putting poison in his wine. And at dinner, when he was saying the blessing before the meal, the wine carafe broke. Mm -hmm. And here was a miracle. Mm -hmm. Now, our source of information is Pope Gregory the Great. Mm -hmm. Gregory the Great was quite impressed with him. And he wrote this account around 592. Now, this would be 45 years after Benedict's death. Mm-hmm. But this is our major source of information. And it's interesting, John. Here you have this man, that is Gregory the Great, essentially jotting down notes of this man's life. You know, one man jotting down notes of another man's life. Have we seen this before? Yes, Athanasius with Anthony. You yes, had mentioned, John, this, this attraction that people had towards Benedict. You know, what's so attractive? He's living up in a cave. What's the big deal? You know, certainly there were rumors about that there were miracles going on, but what's going on? 
the same kind of thing was happening with St. Anthony of Egypt. You know, people would go out of their way to just speak with St. Anthony of Egypt, okay? The same thing is going on here with St. Benedict. So we see a pattern (laughs) developing with our church fathers, and that pattern is where you have a man of holiness, where you have a man who seeks to constantly overcome those three temptations of of self-affirmation, sensuality, and anger and revenge. What you have is, is a man of holiness. And there's something about that. You know, the word attraction or attractive is very important because throughout history, John, one age after another, each age uh, essentially lives in some aspect of darkness. And so we are drawn to men of light, okay, and women of light as well. Uh, I'm thinking of Donald DeMarco's great image, an image I could never share enough, where he's talking about holiness. And he says, you know, holiness is like a lighthouse where it just shines in the darkness. You know, it it doesn't send off um, flares or shoot off cannons to make its presence known. It just shines in the darkness, right? And, And we look at lighthouses, we are attracted to lighthouses for a reason. They kind of act as compasses for us in the dark. And so this is what Benedict is. In so many ways, he is a compass, a spiritual compass that is a very bright light in a very dark time. It was St. Gregor the Great who said, Benedict is a luminous star in a black night of history. A luminous star in a black night of history. And what was that black night? What was that very, very dark night? Well, what we were talking about over the past few weeks, these barbarian invasions, the collapse of the Roman Empire, you know, the moral decay. Yes. Uh, Item number two in his rule is the abbot. Now, abbot comes from the word, the Hebrew word, Abba, my father. Okay, so... His first rule for being an abbot is set a good example for the monks. We have to make sure the monks are monks. And, you know, if, if they go out of line, you need to do something. But you, you lead by example. And I think that was his leadership method. Was And example attracts hugely. Mm-hmm. And silent example can be very persuasive. Amen to that. You were also talking earlier about, uh, you know, St. Benedict and... How did people make contact with them? Were they climbing up there? You know, there's lots of, lots of stories. When I was studying St. Benedict back in college, all sorts of caveat stories of him coming out to the edge of of the cave and and, and, and preaching to these people and people climbing trees, you know, all all, all these sorts of things. This is is what was going on. It's Zacchaeus, huh? Climbing the tree to just see Jesus. And in, in this kind of way, people are just doing anything and everything to just get a glimpse of this man, to get a glimpse of, of this light of holiness. His biographer, Gregory the Great, he's one of three popes who have the title Great, mm-hmm. and he is a pope that just, I, I am in awe of him. Gregory the Great was, we'll get to him later, but he was a man of great wealth, came from, I mean, an A-plus family and an yeah. old family, so he's got old wealth, old family, and he was hugely impressed with a Benedict. Gregory lived in a large home and he tried to make it into kind of a Benedictine monastery. There weren't, the order hadn't been founded, but you know, he impressed people after his death. That's, that's impressive. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And biographically speaking, John, did you have a few other pieces? He, he's in Subiac and he seems to be willed by a wealthy man, the land at Monte Cassino. Mm -hmm. I think that's how he acquired the land and he moved there and he 
built the casino there, and it is still there, the oldest, I think the oldest monastery, well, maybe, I don't know, but it could it be. Is, yep, Certainly yep, it's old. Yep. And when you think of it, this is kind of like the city on a hill. It's an example. Everybody who comes to this valley sees this Christian Catholic example on top of a hill, and there is, see, there's your example. Mm-hmm. And it speaks quite a bit. Yeah, and as you're talking there, John, I can't help but think and go back to uh, Benedict's reflection. And just by way of footnote, it's important again, this is another man that's important to Benedict in that uh, St. Benedict that we were talking about this evening is the patron of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI's papacy. So he was very important to him. And in his reflections on St. Benedict, he went to St. Gregory the Great as it relates to the relationship between Subiaco and Monte Cassino. And he says this, We can see how St. Benedict's exodus from this remote valley to Monte Cassino, a plateau dominating uh, the vast surrounding plain, which uh, can be seen from afar, as you talk about it, John, has very much a symbolic character. And it is this, a hidden monastic life has its own reason for existence. But a monastery also has its public purpose in the life of church and of society. And ultimately, that purpose is to give visibility to the faith as a force of life. And so what Benedict wants us to see as we're reflecting into this, and certainly what us, what St. Gregory the Great highlights, John, is that ultimately one should be seen in light of the other. It is man and mission. It is to understand at a deeper level what it means to be in God and then ultimately, again, for other. That great structure of faith that we've talked about so much here on the radio program. In God, for other. Gift, task, new identity, new goal. It was in this vein, John, that uh, when reflecting upon a monk's life, Pope Benedict said this, that the monk's life becomes a fruitful symbiosis between action and contemplation. There is this, this organic unity between action and contemplation, and that very much lies at the heart of Benedict. He had the best saying ever, ora et labora, mm-hmm. pray and work. Yep. Simple, and, and I think that kind of went to the, the heart of his type of monk and monastery. Exactly, Joe. Amen. Ora et labora, to pray is to work, and really to work is to pray. And th- exactly, th- this, yes. this is the this is the contemplation and action, the action and contemplation. It's this constant gaze back towards Christ, the constant search for Christ. And this was always in the context of Benedict's self-examination of man and mission. John Paul II took this question up a great deal. Benedict took up this question, and to some extent, even already Pope Francis. Man and mission, what is it all about? This organic unity between action and contemplation points to how we are to give glory to God. The whole AMDG, you know, give glory to God that we put on top of paper, it really comes out from uh, Benedict's rule. Another biographical fact is he had a sister, Saint Scholastica, Mm -hmm. and she was at a convent of women nearby, and they would meet once a year. He would come down from uh, Monte Cassino, and they would talk. And on Saint Scholastica's feast day, which is in January, late January, there's the conversation. The last conversation he had, because I think she died a day or two later. Mm-hmm. And it's just touching as can be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just want to point out that he did have a sister, and she is a saint. 
Now, he wrote the rule at Monte Cassino. He must have had a lot of it in his mind. Mm -hmm. And he drew on resources we've already mentioned, St. Anthony of the Desert, St. Augustine, St. Basil. But anyway, he wrote a rule, and the rule is, let's say, intact. Now, the original was, there were originals around as late as Charlemagne. Charlemagne was around 800. 800. Mm -hmm. And Charlemagne was very impressed, and he had copies made. And when some of the papyrus uh, ones burn, Charlemagne's vellum copies remained. So we have the rule. I mean, there it, it it's gone. It goes back that far. Yeah, and it was probably roughly three centuries after Benedict's death. Of Benedict's death is in 547. It was around that time, uh, 300 years later, uh, that the church looks upon the rule as really the foundation of all Western monasticism. Essentially, the Church um, gives it its uh, indelible mark, if you will, as the rule of Western monasticism. And, John, we were talking a bit earlier, you know, this figure is going to go into another week because of the richness of his rule, no doubt. And certainly, as we've already talked about Monte Cassino as a city on the hill, the impact of the Benedictines upon civilization is astounding. Astounding, absolutely astounding. So we're going to talk much, much more about that. But there are, I thought, some pieces that are important to discuss from his rule. Okay, let me just read to you sentence number one from his prologue of the rule. Here's sentence number one. Listen carefully, my son, to the master's instruction and attend to them with the ear of your heart. Mm-hmm. Mother Dolores Hart, mm-hmm. one of my favorite movie stars, mm-hmm. where the boys are, <laughs> um, wrote... Uh, the Ear of the Heart. That mm-hmm. is her autobiography, biography, mm-hmm. uh, which came out two years ago. And she is a Benedictine nun, has been since 1963 at Bethlehem, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. That's where the uh, monastery is located. Mm-hmm. God bless her. Amen to her. And it's really interesting. Uh, I've heard interviews with her on a number of occasions, and she's constantly, constantly quoting the rule of St. Benedict. It's <laughs> most striking. So talking about... Uh, St. Benedict, talking about the abbot, you had mentioned um, the importance of of the uh, abbot. Uh, It's important to note, John, that uh, St. Benedict was never ordained a priest. That takes many people by surprise, that he was never ordained a priest. How could a man become, you know, so, well, the same could be said of St. Francis, right? Yes. (laughs) Francis was never ordained a a priest. And I, I wanted to bring that out a little bit because I think it really highlights the uh, the aforementioned attractive light, the aforementioned holiness, essentially is doing what God is calling you to do in that moment. Another barometer of Benedictine spirituality. Um, whatever God is calling you to do, if it's out working on a potato farm or if it's cleaning the, uh, the kitchen floors, scrubbing the kitchen floors, whatever you're doing, the aura et labora moment is realized when you see that this can be an offering for God. Exactly. The whole day is a prayer, according to him. And the rule was not overly severe. I mean, it it was a doable thing for these men. I mean, there wasn't beatings or anything like that. You know, all kinds of huge fasts. Yeah. It was something you could do, and therefore it was quite attractive to to those sorts of people. And there's lots to the rule. I hope we have time to go through it in our, in our show uh, next time. Sure, uh, But sure. He, he, had a, he has a beautiful chapter on humility. And uh, St. Teresa, uh, Teresa of Avila talks about humility being a, the, the primary virtue. He has an excellent chapter on humility, 12 points to go into making up humility. Maybe we can get into that next time. Mm-hmm. 
and mm-hmm. also very interesting. How do you how do you become a Benedictine? You go to the gate and you knock on the door and you could wait for four days before they let you in. They want yeah. to make sure you're sincere. Yeah. Well, and even as you talk about the simplicity of the rule, John, and how that's attractive, less is more. As, as yes. the adage goes, less is more. I, when I talk with people about, you know, if they're going through something, I always engage them with that great truth, less is more. And by that, I mean, there's a tendency today to accumulate stuff, to accumulate things, especially today. But there was, you know, 1,400 years ago as well. And so it is inviting to not have to worry about all these things. Yet, what St. Benedict wanted us to see was that in that less, we can give more to God. But in giving more to God, these simple rules, it's just not something that you can acquire by, you know, just waking up one morning saying, all right, Lord, I'm going to be humble. All right, Lord, I'm going to be obedient. Oh, I tell you, obedience. I mean, that's a very tough one for a lot of religious. Uh, I tell you what, Lord, I'm I'm going to embrace this call to poverty. All of these virtues, all of these, uh, in religious terms, evangelical counsels, poverty, chastity, obedience, they are straightforward. They are simple. But I don't want anyone thinking out there that these can be done without God's grace. They can't. <laughs> that these are, these are easy. Because essentially, Benedict wanted less so that we can devote more attention to that struggle in grace. We don't have to go to a monastery to embrace poverty, chastity, and obedience. We can do it with our wives at home. That's and, right. And, and go to holiness that way. Yeah, whatever vocation that you're called to right right now, married life, single life, whether you're a student, whatever you're doing, whatever God is calling you to right now to really embrace these. You know, John Paul II, in his uh, encyclical Vita Consecrata, you know, his encyclical On the Mm -hmm. Consecrated Life, develops these evangelical councils, poverty, chastity, and obedience a great deal. And he makes a point that these are virtues that that we live by because in living in them, we become icons of Christ. But these are not removed from the daily rhythm and tenor of, of the married person or the single person who's living mm-hmm. in the world. Um, in fact, we can learn from religious in that way and espouse towards them to live a simple life, um, to live a chaste life, okay? And, and by chaste, I'm not talking about abstinence, okay? It's to live mm-hmm. a pure life to live a modest life, um, and certainly obedience. Um, uh, St. Benedict uh, speaks beautifully about the relationship between obedience and prayer. John, you and I have talked about this in the past, that when you look at the word prayer in the Latin, precari, what does that word mean? To ask. I get a lot of people asking me questions about prayer, John, probably the number one question. (laughs) People say, hey, Joe, you know, what... uh, You know, do people ask you in Catholic or non-Catholic about purgatory, the Pope, so on and so forth? Yeah, I get those questions. But I'll tell you what, John, there's not one question that I get get asked more than, how do I pray? Oh, good. And I let them know, well, what is prayer? It is to ask. Why do I talk about that? Well, think about it. If you're going to ask someone something, what do you need to do? You have to listen. What does the word obedience mean? Obadire, to listen. So if you're going to ask God, then you need to obediently respond to God, which means what? To listen. And in light of this listen-response dynamic, what we come to understand is that prayer is about conversation with God. And again, the aura et labora moment that really embodied uh, St. Benedict's uh, spirituality is about 
that moment, I, I think in so many ways, that crystallizes the spirituality of St. Benedict. Yes. He set up the entire day uh, based upon doing uh, the liturgy of the hours in public with the monks. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, he goes through the, uh, the time that each of these start in the summer and in the winter. We pray the, the, the Psalms, we pray the liturgy of the hours. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was a big part of it. I'm not sure how they got priests in to say, I mean, they had priests, of course, because they had mass. Yeah, yeah. That I, that I don't really know. Uh, yeah, and as you talk about this, and maybe this is our, our wrap-up thought, John, s- many stories have been told about the Benedictines that, you know, you talk about liturgy and, and the hymns and the singing of the hymns. Uh, people were drawn to the monasteries to just listen to yes. these men sing the psalms and sing the hymns. So, all right, John, we are out of time. Um, but uh, again, next week we are going to get uh, much more into St. Benedict's rule. Why do we look at this as so foundational to all monasticism? And certainly out from that, John, and I'm very much looking forward to this, we are going to have the opportunity to look at some of the fine details into why the Benedictines um, are so important to us today. No matter what faith you belong to, in so many ways, the Benedictines uh, saved uh, Western civilization, and I very much look forward to discussing that with you next week. All right, let us close with the word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, The website is joeholcraft.org.